At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 438th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who built her food system with backyard poultry. We're talking with Christine Heinrichs about raising backyard chickens. Christine lives on California's central coast in an unincorporated rural community. She has a small flock of about 10 hens, some old friends, and some newcomers. She holds a BS in journalism from the University of Oregon and belongs to several professional journalism and poultry organizations. Christine started writing about chickens in the 1980s when she lived in San Jose and got her first hens. How to Raise Chickens was published through Quarto Publishing in 2007, just as the local food movement was starting to focus attention on our food systems and backyard chickens became the symbol of local food. How to Raise Poultry followed in 2009, and her third book, The Backyard Field Guide to Chickens, was published in 2016. This year, her first book, How to Raise Chickens, has been updated and re-released. Welcome to the show today, Christine. Are you ready to rock hens? I am. Thanks, Greg. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, it's kind of been a long and winding road, as I think is kind of common among backyard chicken keepers. (laughs) Back in the 1980s, my daughter is about five years old, and uh, one day she said, oh, mom, I'd like to have some baby chicks. And I was a kind of sort of spaced out mother who always said, oh, honey, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. And, of course, I was living in San Jose, but we had a big backyard, and I went to the local feed store and came home with half a dozen baby chicks and absolutely no idea of what to do with them. Right. So I put them in a uh, a plastic laundry basket, and there they were. And fortunately, the feed store had sold me some chick starters, so at least they had something to eat, and I gave them some water, and there we were, and the chicks were growing up. And I realized I knew nothing about this. I grew up in New Jersey, just outside New York City, and I was very much an urban girl. But here we were with these baby chicks. So I looked around for a book. Now, this was back in the 1980s, and at that time, backyard chickens just weren't a thing. So uh, there was nothing. All the books on chickens were about raising, you know, hundreds of thousands at a time. Right. So, yeah, see, you were back there then, too. Mm -hmm. 
So I realized this was my first lesson. And fortunately, I did have a degree in journalism and I had some experience as a writer. And I realized that sometimes if you're looking for a book and it's just not out there, you're the one who has to write it. (laughs) Right. So that's kind of the origin of why I wrote How to Raise Chickens, because I, I actually had been learning about chickens for a long time by the time I got there and finally sold the idea in the early 21st century. Mm-hmm. But we were, you know, kind of finding our way. The good thing, one of the good things about chickens is they're very resilient and forgiving. So all the crazy mistakes that I made, you know, the chickens just kind of ignored me and did just fine. I had a contractor come in and build me a chicken coop, which, you know, fortunately he had some ideas about that because I sure didn't. Mm-hmm. And, right. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, what did I know? You know, I was just letting them run around the backyard, and they liked that. One day I had a neighbor over, and we were chatting, and one of the chickens was out having a, du- a dirt bath, and she was digging around. And my neighbor looked out, and in a kind of worried way, she said, I think one of your chickens is caught in the dust. <laughs> uh, yeah, I said, well, that's actually, and this is how I learned about the chickens, uh-huh. is just by living with them and watching them. I then got involved with some poultry organizations, and I learned that chickens actually come in different breeds, just like dogs or dachshunds or Great Danes. There are all kinds of breeds of chickens, and the ones that I got were growing up all different colors. I was fascinated by this because it simply had never occurred to me. So the biggest surprise was when one of them got bigger and bigger, and I thought that that was really really a big chicken. And I finally figured out what was going on the day I first heard him crow, and the light dawned about what was going on there. Oh, yeah. It's it's really subtle and and soft. They start out like... And kind of right, kind of like a pre puberty rock star. Yeah, exactly. He was actually a buff Orpington. He was an absolutely beautiful bird. But of course, in urban neighborhoods, you are not the most popular neighbor if you have a crowing rooster. So, although I had some neighbors come by and say, Oh, I grew up on a farm and this really reminds me of home and I like it, that's the exception. Most people are not thrilled to have a rooster crowing. So I confronted the problem of placing surplus roosters. This is not an easy thing to do. You know, in the big picture, roosters are actually just fine to grow. And they, for, you know, in the past, they were the spring chickens. You know, they would be the, the frying chicken that ended up at the family picnic in June. Yep. And this is really, you know, right now we have this uh, this difficulty because with in urban situations in suburban yards, really hens are the only ones that are tolerated, and so male chicks tend to be uh, thrown away. They're mm-hmm. they are not of value, but they actually can be an important part of a breeding operation. Obviously, you want to grow out some of your roosters to find out which are the best ones that you are going to want to use in your breeding program. And those surplus roosters make excellent table birds. And, you know, if you're thinking of your chickens primarily as pets and, you know, dear little fluffy, that's kind of a hard thought. But chickens are domestic animals. They are livestock. Mm -hmm. And the reason we have, you know, they're not wild animals. They are birds that have been domesticated for thousands of years. And that's, it's really all about meat and eggs. 
So I personally, like so many people, am very fond of my chickens, and I do not kill them and eat them. But I know people who do, and I understand that that is, that's really the utility of chickens. Right. If we're going to deal with this head-on, full-on, we have to wrap our head around that. That's right. And I have a very good friend who's also written some books, um, Pat Foreman. She's very good. And she does whole workshops on this. And she says, you know, we owe them a good life and we owe them a good death. And she she's very unapologetic about it. Like I say, I don't personally do that, but I very much support her in uh, in her campaign to, to have us all. This is when we're talking about food. That's what we're talking about. Exactly. This is part of the food system. And what's going on industrially is is a real horror show. So I think it's something that we can grapple with. When I, you know, a few years ago, I, I actually got some meat hens and raised them out here at the urban farm. I think I raised, it's been about a decade now. And over the course of three or four years, I raised like 25 meat birds. And up to that point, you know, I'm not a hunter, although I fished when I was younger. And, you know, for whatever reason in my head, fish is different than a chicken. Um, when you have to take their life. But it was a process to actually work through that in my head. Yeah, I think it's good for us to to think about, you know, and we're all going to fall someplace on a spectrum about that. Like I say, I I don't, you know, kill my own chickens. I do eat chicken. This is, you know, it's a complicated issue. It is. I like the idea that we're that we're confronting that because I think the more we think about that, the more likely we are to lead to more humane livestock raising. Yeah. And that, that's really the big picture for me is I'm very uncomfortable with, with what's going on in the industry now. Yeah. And I'd like to see every chicken have a good life and a good death. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So heritage breeds, you're, you're really big into that. In fact, uh, Janice tells me that you're going to have an article for us on our blog on uh, heritage breeds. That's that's the thing that I got into with when I first learned about chicken breeds and, and this wonderful buff Orpington rooster that I had. What's an Orpington? Who knew? It <laughs> right. turns out, yeah, it turns out that there's people who know all kinds of stuff about this. There is a whole world of poultry exhibition, and that is governed by the American Poultry Association, which has been around since 1874. Wow. At that yeah, I know. This is there's a great history here, and they published their first uh, standard of excellence. They called it then. Back in those days, the way chicken chickens were not raised industrially in these huge sheds of hundreds of thousands of birds, people raised these specialized breeds, and they were proud of them. And in order to help increase their marketing, they would show them. And then they'd advertise that they were the winner at the Ohio Poultry Show, and this, and they they were well known. Daniel Webster exhibited some of his chickens at the first American Poultry Show back in Boston, about I think it was 1854. So there's there's a whole history there, and there are poultry shows all over. For anyone who's listening to this, you can probably find a poultry show somewhere within driving distance, and I encourage you to go visit the poultry show and find your local poultry club. You'll learn a lot. There are people who are very expert who become poultry judges, mm-hmm. and they learn how to judge poultry based on their size, shape, weight, feather color, feather condition. 
There are a myriad of wow. parameters. So I'm not all that familiar with heritage breeds on chickens, but I know about heritage seeds and we do a lot of podcasts and talking about saving seeds and saving the genetics behind them. Is there some similarities here? It's very much a parallel situation, Greg. Uh, the difference is you can save seeds and they will last for years and years. But in order to save chickens, you can't really just save an egg and sperm. There, there are scientists who are working on being able to do that. But basically, if you're going to save a chicken breed, you have to save a whole flock. And you have to ideally save mm. more than one flock right? because that's where you're going to get the chickens from. It's not the same as seeds. So people have to really be dedicated to keeping their breed or more than one breed. And it's kind of a slippery slope. You may have noticed this with chicken keepers. You know, sometimes they say, well, you know, I had five chickens and then I had 10 chickens and now I don't count those chickens anymore because there's a lot. And keeping chickens for breeding is very specialized. You know, you have to keep them separate. You can't just have any rooster breeding any hen because you'll just get mongrels as yeah. you would with, with dogs. You know, if you breed a cocker spaniel with a dachshund, you don't get either cocker spaniels or dachshunds. Right. So it's, it's a similar situation. So what is a heritage breed? Okay, a heritage breed is usually considered to be one that was well-known and identified before 1950. And some of these breeds have been around for hundreds of years. Poultry art can be an interesting way to follow some of these. Uh, Dorkings, for instance, have actually been around since uh, the Roman era. Wow. They are, yes, they are have very particular characteristics. They have a fifth toe, so that's identifiable. And they are actually uh, memorialized in some Roman mosaics. So, and they're easily identified. They were thought to be, they, they take their name from an English market town of Dorking, which in fact today has a museum devoted to the Dorking chicken. Hmm. Yes, I hope to get to England and visit that someday. So what makes heritage breeds better to keep or like, what's the pull there? The pull there is to keep those genetics around. Uh, heritage breeds have many characteristics, not just their beauty and their color and their fist toes, but they also have the resilience that reflects their long history. There are breeds like the Buttercup from southern Italy and Sicily and from Africa. Now, breeds like that may carry some resistance to diseases such as avian influenza. Mm -hmm. now, we don't really know about these things, but the genetic profile of the industrial chickens is very narrow and uniform. And we are struggling with various poultry maladies. The way chickens are raised industrially with so many chickens, so similar genetically, confined and in these huge poultry houses, it's a breeding ground for uh, pathogens. And if mm -hmm. something, yeah, if something gets in there and is a problem, those birds have no resistance to it. So these breeds may actually be uh, the savior of the poultry industry. I think it's worthwhile, just like it is for saving seeds, to keep them around because they're important, because we don't know when we're going to need them or what they really have to share with us. 
Yeah. You know, I just, uh, while you were chatting there, I, I Googled Dorking, D-O-R-K-I-N, or D-O-R-K-I-N-G, chicken, Dorking chicken. And Correct. And a website came up, the Livestock Conservancy. So there's a whole organization out here dedicated to saving the heritage breeds. That's right. And they, I'm involved, I'm a member of the Livestock Conservancy. Conservancy, they are involved with saving all kinds of livestock, sheep, horses, donkeys, as well as all kinds of poultry, not just chickens, but ducks and geese and turkeys. So they are a wonderful organization. I work with Jeanette Berenger, who's the poultry conservation manager over there. She's got a special project going with Creve Coeur chickens right now. She actually, her husband is a French chef, and so they have visited France. The Crivecourt is a French chicken. Uh, they're very beautiful. They have a crest. You may be familiar with crested chickens such as the Polish. Mm-hmm. They have kind of a weird top knot. That's not just feathers. Their skulls actually have a knob oh, on yes. top of them. So they're very interesting and they're very old. That's an old, old characteristic. And so she is working through the Livestock Conservancy to try to recover these birds and get breeders to to establish breeding flocks. Uh, the Livestock Conservancy had a lot of success with the, the buckeye chicken. Mm. This was the breed. This is known and named for Ohio, which is the buckeye state. They have a very rich red color, and they were, they're known as the breed, the only breed that's credited to a woman for being developed, Nettie Metcalf is the one who, at the beginning of the 20th century, decided she wanted a nice big red chicken, and she crossed some birds until she got what she liked. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a great story. There's great history here. So she's got these, and then they had kind of fallen out of favor, and the Livestock Conservancy was very instrumental in helping them to recover. They're beautiful birds, and because they were raised in Ohio, they have special cold Oh, yes. Yep. So if you live in a cold climate, the the Buckeye, the Chanticleer, which is the national chicken of Canada, is also a good breed. Yeah, well, and that's something we had to discover here in Phoenix because it gets to 120 degrees in our chicken coop in the summertime. And, right. you know, we had to discover which chickens did better in the heat. You know, so I know that there's uh, heat-resistant hens as well as cold-resistant ones. Which did you find? The uh, Americana does really well here. Obviously, the Rhode Island Red. Those two seem to do best here. Uh, you might try some of the Mediterranean and Spanish breeds. Mm-hmm. Those Sicilian Buttercups might be good for you. Oh, interesting. Cool. Leghorns, Menorcas, those are all beautiful and wonderful breeds that might suit you very well. So in the, your intro... Uh, We talked about your different books that you've written. Thank you so much for doing that, because I know when I started Keeping Hens, my sole source for information about them was pretty much the feed store where I got the chicks at. And, you know, that was back in 1999. So having resources like this is always appreciated. And How to Raise Chickens, the Quarto Publishing, is uh, you guys have updated it and it's being re-released. Tell us about that book. Well, that's the book that I wanted back in 1987. Like you, uh, there really wasn't much out there. 
And after I'd kept chickens for about 10 or 15 years, I'd learned quite a bit about them. I'd become involved with poultry organizations and with the Livestock Conservancy. And I felt like I was in a position to start sharing that with others. Trying to sell a book idea in the early 21st century to (laughs) publishers, (laughs) okay? Yeah. Yeah. No one had heard of this. We were out there on our own, and selling this to an editor took a while. But eventually, Quarto sprung for this and told me to go ahead and write the book. So I did. I, you know, kind of kept my options open by keeping my job as a magazine editor and working at home and put together everything I could think of that I would have wanted to know when I was getting started, as well as a lot of what I'd learned about the various chicken breeds, because I got really excited about how beautiful they are, how interesting they are, how interesting their history is. And the book finally came out in 2007. And I, when I told people that I'd written a book about chickens, they'd kind of look at me funny and say, is it a cookbook? <laughs> you know, people still didn't know what I was talking about. But it was just about that time that the local food movement started taking off. And chickens sort of became the mascot. Right. You know, it's it's one thing to talk about beef or goats. But that's a really big commitment, and uh, you need a, a really rural lifestyle to keep those. But as we found out, anyone who wants to and has a backyard can keep a few chickens and have fresh eggs. I'm a big believer that if you have some, you know, have a backyard, keeping three or four hens is almost imperative, you know, because the, the hens will be eating bugs and weeds and they're giving you fertilizer and they give you eggs every day. So you're getting food out of your yard every day. I think of this as sort of pets with benefits, <laughs> right? But I also think that this is really important to teach our neighbors and our children exactly what you just said, that there's a, a big circle of agriculture here. There's the keeping the crops healthy naturally with having chickens that can eat the bugs, that can help aerate the soil. People who have a small property often keep what's called a chicken tractor. Mm -hmm. Have you seen those? Oh, yes. Portable chicken coop. A portable chicken coop. You move it around and the chickens work up the soil. They eat the bugs, they eat the weed seeds, and then they poop it out as rich fertilizer and then work that into the soil for you. So on a farm, it makes sense to have everyone working and your chickens can be part of that big circle. And being aware of of the importance of soil health, I think, is really crucial to moving forward. Big time. And all the issues that face us today. Big time. My longtime listeners will know I'm a big, big proponent of creating healthy soil. And, you know, having having chickens in your backyard to help with that is uh, extraordinary. It really is. And that's, that's part of, I think of all of us as informal educators. We're helping educate our friends and our children and our neighbors about the importance of this You know, we have industrial agriculture. It's not just the industrial livestock keeping, but industrial agriculture that is spraying their fields with poison Mm -hmm. and degrading the soil. And that is a a short-term solution. And we're coming to really um, contend with 
super weeds and food super that, bugs. That, that isn't yep. right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So we're we're really in the midst of doing some very exciting things and having some fun with our beautiful chickens. Amen to that. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Well, I think the most common failure for backyard chicken keepers is a, a predator attack. Oh my gosh, no kidding. It's awful. It's just terrible. And, you know, you love these animals, and mm-hmm. then this terrible thing happens. And it's one of it's really the most discouraging thing that can happen to a chicken keeper. Oh, it happened here at the urban farm. We about it's been about three years ago now. So we live right in the middle of Phoenix. If you stand on my roof and look fifty miles in each direction, you see houses. And we had a bobcat or a couple of bobcats take out ten of our hens right in the middle of Phoenix. So that you know exactly yeah. So what do we do about that? Well, what you do is. You get really serious about coop security. I mean, I live in a rural area. We have actually a lot of mountain lions here. Now, actually, a a bobcat attack is unusual. Bobcats and mountain lions, um, bobcats usually go after small uh, furry things like moles, rats, Mm -hmm. things like that. But they definitely will go after chickens, given the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Mountain lions tend to attack deer. The most common livestock attacks from mountain lions are on goats, which are similar. But again, you know, that can happen. We've even in in our county had bears tear apart chicken coops. So this can happen. I actually recommend that people look at the Mountain Lion Foundation plans for livestock pens and build with that in mind. You have to cover the top as well because there are aerial predators who will come after them. Chickens are a prey animal, and you you need to know that going in and be really secure. The other thing I had to get, I had a rat problem for a while, and I had to get very serious about feed security. Because the, the rats too. are not coming after the chickens. They're coming after the chicken feed. Yes. So I now keep my feed in a double plastic tub, and I have a special chicken feeder that the chickens have to step on the front of it and then it opens it's metal Mm -hmm. so if the chicken is not standing on that keeping it open it closes itself right so you know those those are some of the things that can be problems and i think that that's on us that's another reason why i really wanted to write this book and help people succeed because people who get into it and they don't you know like i did with you know putting the chickens in the it was cute but it really it's not the way to get into it. It's much better to get involved knowing what you're getting into, mm-hmm. being safe, and you're much likely to have success. So what do you consider your biggest success? The biggest success was really, I think, learning about heritage breeds and spreading that word and having the opportunity to write these books. You know, that my degree was in journalism, uh, University of Oregon, so that makes me a fighting duck. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> So it, it's just been wonderful to have that opportunity to have these books. After How to Raise Chickens, people, like I say, that was just kind of snowballing. And so then I did How to Raise Poultry, which is also about ducks and geese and turkeys and guinea fowl and quail and all these other wonderful species. And I'm working now on an article about guineas. Guinea fowl are an interesting species that are 
sort of related. They are domesticated, although they still live in the, in the wild in Africa as mm-hmm. well. They've sort of fallen out of favor, and people don't know much about them anymore. But perhaps that's something that, that we could create some interest in and bring back as a table bird. And what drives you? What drives me? I guess it's a passion to save the world. You know, I really feel like that's what we're doing out here. Uh, Look where this conversation has gone. We've gone to cleaning up the soil, having Mm -hmm. healthy soil, raising better crops, being strong, being food secure, taking care of each other, helping each other to do better. And I guess that that's really my, my passion. Yeah, beautiful. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, the obvious choice, after my books, of course, Uh is the American Poultry Association's Standard of Perfection. Mm. That is the book that lists every breed, the requirements for showing, some of the history, and exactly how to participate in shows. It's a wonderful volume. It's available through the American Poultry Association's website. And for anyone who's interested in poultry, I just can't recommend this more highly. It's I learned something. I'm constantly learning from it. Even experienced judges often carry a copy with them when they go to judge mm-hmm. because there are always other refinements and points that they want to check. Yeah. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would advise them to get involved with your local poultry group. You will meet people who are your who are, have who share your interests, mm-hmm. and they will introduce you to their breeds. I'm going to be going out on Saturday to get two new pullets from our local poultry club. They do a uh, an annual fundraiser by getting chicks in January and raising them up to be oh, uh, laying pullets nice. and then selling them. Yeah. So they And they always get some heritage breeds. I'm going to get two Javas for my flock. The people are really nice. They all know things that I, you know, am constantly yeah. learning from them. And they're a lot of fun. Chicken people are a lot of fun. Chicken people occasionally like to fight, and so this is something that happens in organizations. But for the most part, we just have a lot of fun together, and we all love chickens. (laughs) Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Christine. Well, it's just been a pleasure, Greg, and and I'm really glad that that you're doing the work you're doing because that's helping to let others know about, about my books and about chickens and about the American Poultry Association. Yay. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Okay. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Christine Heinrichs, and I am happy to connect with people. I post interesting poultry stories there, mm-hmm. and I'm certainly available to answer questions. And please contact me through social media. Beautiful. You also hear me say every time I do one of these podcasts that every day we work to inspire you to become part of your food revolution. So we want to thank Christine and the folks over at Quarto Publishing as they help us with this goal because they've given us three copies of her book, How to Raise Chickens, and they need a new home. And we get to share them with you, our listening audience. To participate, just email us at podcasts at urbanfarm.org with the subject line, I'll raise you one chicken. Make sure you provide us your name and mailing address. We will pick three random emails from the first 30 people who respond in the next few weeks. 
Contest rules can be found at urbanfarm.org forward slash podcast giveaway. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Christine H. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.